welcome to the Crack Open a Classic podcast, the podcast where I read a chapter or two, an episode aloud, ask questions to help you think about the chapter, and open the world of classics to you. So grab a cup of coffee or tea, and let's jump into the chapter. Chapter 3, Just as Monsieur Wishes Three seconds before receiving J.B. Hobson's letter, I had no more thought of chasing the sea unicorn than of finding the Northwest Passage. Three seconds after reading the letter of the Honorable Secretary of the Navy, I realized that my true vocation, my life's only aim, was to pursue this annoying monster and rid the world of it. However, I had just come back from an exhausting journey and was dying for a rest. I had wanted nothing better than to return to my country, my friends, my little apartment, at la jardin des places and to my beloved precious collections but nothing could hold me back now now i forgot everything my fatigue my friends and my collections and i accepted the american government's invitation without another thought after all i reflected all roads lead back to europe and the unicorn will surely be obliged enough to take me toward the coast of france this worthy animal will doubtless let itself be caught in european waters just to please me for I want to bring back not less than two feet of its ivory spur for the Museum of Natural History. However, in the meantime, I should have to go and look for this narwhal in the North Pacific, which meant going to France via the antipodes. Conseil, I called out impatiently. Conseil was my faithful servant who accompanied me on all my travels, a fine Flemish lad whom I liked as much as he liked me, phlegmatic by nature, punctual, on principle, zealous from habit, he was seldom taken by surprise by any of life's unexpected incidents. He was also very clever with his hands, ready to perform any service required of him, and in spite of his name, he never gave advice. No, not even when he was not asked. Though rubbing shoulders with learned men in their small world at the Jardin de Plantes, Conseil had picked up quite a bit of information. In him, I had a well-versed specialist in the classification of subjects of natural history, for with the agility of an acrobat, he could run up and down the whole scale of branches, groups, classes, subclasses, orders, families, genuses, subspecies, species, and varieties. But there his knowledge came to an end. Classify was his whole life, but he could do nothing else, since he was very knowledgeable about the theory of classification, but not about the practical side. I doubt if he could tell the difference between a cachalot and a whale. What a fine, good fellow he was! For ten years, Conseil had followed me wherever science had led. Never once had he complained of the length of hardship of a journey. Never once had he objected to packing his bags and leaving for whatever place he might be. It might be whether China or the Congo, regardless of the distance. He had always gone as he was about to go now without question. Moreover, his health was good, and he had a good resistance to disease, solid muscles, not the slightest hint of nerves, and he was very ethical, of course. This lad of thirty years old, and his age was that of his master as fifteen is to twenty. May I be forgiven for this roundabout way of saying that I was forty? But Conseil had one fault. He was formal to the point of excess, and spoke to me only in the third person, so much so, indeed, that I sometimes found it quite irritating. Conseil, I repeated, as I began to make feverish preparations for my departure. Of course, I was sure of this boy, who was so faithful and so normally, I never asked him whether it was convenient for him to follow me on my journeys, but this time the expedition might last indefinitely, and the enterprise consisting of hunting an animal capable of sinking a frigate as easily as a nutshell might well be dangerous. There was good reason to think the matter over, even for the most impassive man in the world. What would Conseil say? Conseil! I shouted for the third time. Conseil appeared. Didn't Monsieur call me? He said as he came in. 
Yes, my lad. Get my things ready and get yourself ready. We leave within two hours, just as Monsieur wishes, Conseil replied quietly. There isn't a moment to lose. Pack everything into my truck. Traveling kit, suits, shirts, and socks. Don't bother to count anything. Just stuff in as much as you can and hurry. But what about Monsieur's collections? asked Conseil. We will take care of that later. What? Monsieur's Acheotherium, his Hierocotherium, his Oreodons, the Chiotimus, and all the other specimens? They will keep them at the hotel. And Monsieur's live Barbarossa? They will feed it while we are away. Anyway, I will give orders to have our whole menagerie sent to France. Then we are not returning to Paris? asked Conseil. Oh, yes, of course we are, I answered evasively, but we shall be taking a detour. Whatever detour Monsieur wishes. Oh, it will only be a short one, just a less direct route. That's all. We are sailing on board the Abraham Lincoln. Whatever suits Monsieur best, Conseil replied calmly. You see, my friend, it's been because of the famous monster, the narwhal. We're going to rid the seas of it. The author of the two-volume work on the mysteries of the great ocean depths can't afford to miss the chance of sailing with Commander Farragut. It will be a glorious mission, but a dangerous one, too. We don't know where we're going. These animals can be very temperamental, but we will go all the same. Our captain is a very courageous man. Wherever Monsieur goes, I go, Conseil replied. But give it a little thought. I don't want to hide anything from you. This is one of those journeys from which people don't always come back. Whatever pleases, Monsieur. A quarter of an hour later, our bags were packed. Conseil had done everything in a twinkling of an eye, and I was sure that nothing was missing, for that boy could classify shirts and suits as well as birds and mammals. The hotel elevator took us down to the mezzanine, and I walked down the few steps to the ground floor. I paid my bill at the front desk, which always seems to be besieged by a large crowd of people. I gave orders for my packages of straw-wrapped animals and dried plants to be sent to Paris. Then I deposited enough money to take care of the Barbarossa, and, with Conseil following me, jumped into a cab. The carriage, available at a fixed fare of four dollars, went down Broadway as far as Union Square, proceeded along Fourth Avenue as far as its junction with Bowery Street, turned into Katrine Street, and pulled up at Pier 34. There the Katrine Ferry transported us, men, horses, and carriages, to Brooklyn, that great suburb of New York, situated on the left bank of the East River, and in a few minutes we arrived at the wharf, where the Abraham Lincoln was belching clouds of black smoke from her two smokestacks. Our luggage was immediately carried onto the deck of the frigate, and I hurried on board. I asked for Commander Farragut, and one of the sailors led me onto the poop, where I found myself in the presence of a good-looking officer, who held out his hand to me. Monsieur Pierre Aranax? he asked. Yes, indeed, Commander Farragut. Welcome aboard, Professor. Your cabin is ready. I bowed to the captain, and leaving him to attend to his equipment, had myself conducted to the cabin assigned to me. The Abraham Lincoln had been perfectly chosen and fitted out for its new job. It was a fast frigate, equipped with high-pressured engines, able to get the steam pressure up to seven atmospheres. Under such pressure, the Abraham Lincoln could attain a mean speed of eighteen and three-tenths miles, a considerable speed, but not enough to deal with a gigantic cetacean. The ship's interior matched her nautical qualities. I was very pleased with my cabin, which was situated aft and opened into the wardroom. We'll be comfortable here, I said to Conseil. As comfortable if, Monsieur will permit me to say, as a hermit crab in the shell of a whelk. I left Conseil to attend to our luggage and went back on deck to watch the preparations for casting off. At that moment, Captain Farragut was ordering the men to cast loose the last mooring ropes holding the Abraham Lincoln to our Brooklyn Pier. 
Thus, if I had arrived a quarter of an hour later, or even less, the frigate would have left without me, and I should have missed this extraordinary and probable expedition, whose truthful account may even now be greeted with incredulity. For Commander Farragut was unwilling to lose any time in heading for the seas where the beast had been sighted. He sent for his engineer. "'Have you got up full steam?' he asked him. "'Yes, sir,' replied the engineer. "'Go ahead,' the captain said. The order was transmitted to the engine room by means of a compressed air signaling device. The engineer started at the wheel, and the steam whistled as it, as it rushed into the half-open slide valves. The long, horizontal pistons creaked and pushed the rods of the shaft, the blades of the propeller threshed the water with increasing speed, and the Abraham Lincoln advanced majestically into the midst of a hundred or so ferryboats and tenders loaded with well-wishers and acting as an escort. The piers of the Brooklyn and all that part of New York bordering on the East River were lined with curious spectators. Three cheers burst from five hundred thousand throats and echoed through the air. Thousands of handkerchiefs waved above the packed crowds bidding farewell to the Abraham Lincoln until she reached the waters of the Hudson at the point where that elongated peninsula forms the city of New York. Then the frigate, following the New Jersey coast along the right bank of that wonderful river, studded the Phyllis, sailing between the forts, which now saluted her with their big guns. The Abraham Lincoln replied by howling down and hoisting the American flag three times, and thirty-nine stars shone splendidly from the mizzen's peak. Then, reducing speed to negotiate the narrow channel marked by buoys in the inner bay formed the Sandy Hook Point. She coasted the long, sandy stretch, where crowds of thousands gave her another cheer. The escorts of boats and tenders were still following the frigate, and did not leave her until they came abreast of the lightship, whose two lights marked the entrance to the New York harbor. Six bells, three o'clock, sounded, and the pilot went down into his small boat and returned to the little schooners that were waiting for him to leeward. The boilers were stoked up, the propeller pounded the waves more quickly, the frigate skirted the low yellow coast of Long Island, and at eight o'clock in the evening, after the lights of Fire Island had faded away to the northwest, she ran full steam ahead into the dark waters of the Atlantic. Chapter 4. Ned Land Commander Farragut was a fine sailor, worthy of the frigate that he commanded. He and his ship were as one, for he was its very soul. On the subject of the monster, there was no doubt in his mind, nor would he allow anyone on board to question the existence of the animal. He believed in it as certain good women believed of Leviathan, as a matter of faith rather than reason. The monster did exist, and he had sworn to rid the, the seas of it. He was a sort of knight of Rhodes, another Diodon de Gazon, who, going out to meet the serpent that was laying waste his island. Either Commander Farragut would kill the narwhal, or the narwhal would kill him. There was no middle course. The ship's officers shared their captain's view. You should have heard them talking, discussing, arguing, and calculating the chances of an encounter. As they scrutinized the vast expanse of ocean, some of them, who would have cursed such a chore under different circumstances, took up a post in the cross-trees. As long as the sun was in the sky, the rigging was alive with sailors, who found it unbearable to stand on their bare feet in the scorching heat of the wooden deck. And still the Abraham Lincoln was not yet plowing the suspect waters of the Pacific. As for the crew, they asked nothing better than to encounter the sea unicorn, harpoon it, hoist it aboard the car, and carve it up. They surveyed the sea with rapt attention. Commander Farragut, incidentally, had spoken of a certain sum of $2,000 which would be given to anybody, be he cabin boy, ordinary seaman, sailor, or officer, who sighted the monster. So, you can well imagine how eyes were strained aboard the Abraham Lincoln. 
I didn't lag behind the others, and I would have delegated my daily watch to no one else. There would have been a hundred good reasons to, for calling the ship the Argus, the only one of us who showed his indifference to this matter that occupied all our thoughts and whose attitude contrasted with the general enthusiasm on board was Conseil. I have already said that Commander Farragut had carefully equipped his ship with devices suitable for catching that gigantic cetacean. No whaler could have been better armed. We possessed every known apparatus, from the harpoon thrown by hand to the blunderbuss, which, with its barbed arrows and the duck gun, with its explosive bullets. On the forecastle there stood the perfect breech-leading loading cannon, thick-walled and narrow-bored, like the model displayed in the 1867 World Exhibition. This excellent weapon, an American invention, was capable of firing at nine-pound conical projectile an average distance of ten miles without any difficulty so that Abraham Lincoln had every sort and kind of a destructive weapon, and better still, she had on board Ned Land, the Prince of Harpooners. Ned Land was a Canadian with a rare swiftness of hand, who knew no equal in his perilous trade. He possessed the qualities of skill, coolness, daring, and cunning to be a higher degree than most, and it was a wily whale or a singularly shrewd cachalot that could escape the thrust of his harpoon. Ned Land was about forty years old. He was a big man, measuring more than six English feet, and strong-built. He looked serious and spoke but little, although he could be violent sometimes and became very angry if someone crossed him. His physique attracted attention, and the strength and sternness of his expression gave a strange emphasis to his face. In my opinion, Commander Farragut had done well to recruit this man. His keen eyes and strong arm made him worth all the others put together. The best way of describing him would be to liken him to the powerful telescope that could double as a cannon was always ready for action. Whoever calls himself Canadian calls himself French, and uncommunicative as Ned was, I must admit that he took a liking to me. My nationality attracted him to me, no doubt. It was a chance for him to talk, and for me to hear the ancient tongue of the Rabelais, which is still spoken in some of the Canadian provinces. The Harpooner's family originally came from Quebec, and were a hardy tribe of fishermen when that town still belonged to France. Gradually, Ned began to enjoy chatting, and I loved to hear him telling of his adventures in the polar seas. In a naturally poetic manner, he recounted his fishing expeditions, his fights, his account would take an epic form, and I felt as though I was listening to some Canadian Homer reciting the Iliad of the far north. I have described my fearless friend as I know him today, for we have become old friends, united in the unshakable friendship that is born of mutual experience with the most awful perils. Ah, my good Ned, I ask nothing better than to live another hundred years just to have longer to remember you. And what did Ned, Ned Land think about the great sea monster? To tell the truth, he did not believe in the unicorn and was the only man on board who did not share the general conviction. He even avoided talking about the subject, so I felt it my duty, finally, to broach the question. One magnificent evening on the 30th July, that is, three weeks after our departure, the frigate was off Cape Blanc, thirty miles to leeward of the coast of Patagonia. We had crossed the Tropic of Capricorn and the Strait of Magellan, was less than 700 miles to the south. Within a week, the Abraham Lincoln would be in the Pacific. Seated on the poop, Ned Land and I chatted of this and that as we looked out over this mysterious waters whose depths have so far remained inaccessible to human scrutiny. Naturally, I brought the subject around to the giant unicorn and began to examine the chances of success or failure of our expedition. Thus, seeing that Ned was letting me talk without saying much himself, I came to the point. Ned, I asked him, how can you possibly doubt the existence of the cetacean that we are pursuing? Have you any particular reason for appearing so incredulous? 
The harpooner looked at me for a few moments before answering, thumping his forehead with his hand in a gesture that was typical of him, closing his eyes as though to collect his thoughts, and then finally said, "'Well, Monsieur Aronnax, perhaps I have. But, Ned, you are a whaler by profession. You know all the great marine mammals, so you ought to find it easy to accept the idea of an enormous cetacean.' "'Considering all the aspects of this situation, you should be the last one to have doubts.' "'That's exactly what misleads you, Professor,' replied Ned. "'Let ordinary people believe in extraordinary comets that travel through space, "'or in the existence of antediluvian monsters that populate the bowels of the earth, if they want to. "'But astronomers and geologists don't believe in such fantasies, and the same goes for the whaler. "'I have hunted many cetaceans. I have harpooned a large number of them, and I have killed several.' and although they were powerful and well-armed, neither their tails nor their weapons could have damaged the iron plates of a steamer. And yet, Ned, there are cases cited of ships whose hulls have been pierced right through by the tusk of the narwhal. That's possible with wooden ships, replied the Canadian, but I've never seen any. So, until I see evidence of the contrary, I'll deny that whales, cachalots, and sea unicorns are capable of doing such damage. But listen, Ned, no, Professor, it isn't possible. It could be anything you say except that. What about a gigantic octopus? That is even less likely, Ned. The octopus is only a mollusk. The very name indicates that its flesh is anything but solid. Even if it were 500 feet long, and the octopus, which does not belong to the vertebrates, would be unable to damage ships like the Scotia or the Abraham Lincoln. We have to reject the imaginary, the prowess of krakens, and other monsters of that species. So, Monsieur le Naturaliste, Ned Land went on in his somewhat impish tone of voice. You insist on saying that an animal is an enormous cetacean? Yes, Ned. I say this with a conviction based on the logic of the facts. I believe in the existence of a powerfully organized mammal belonging to the vertebrates like whales, cachalots, or dolphins, and equipped with a horn-like spur of great penetrating power. Hmm said the harpooner, shaking his head with the air of a man unwilling to be convinced. "'Bear in mind, my worthy Canadian,' I continued, "'that if such an animal exists, if it lives in the depths of the ocean, "'and if it frequents the liquid strata miles below the surface, "'then it must, must of necessity possess an organism whose power defies comparison.' "'And just why must it have such a powerful organism?' asked Ned. "'Because it would need to be able to live at such depths and resist the pressure of the water.' "'Really?' said Ned, winking at me slyly. "'Really?' and I can easily prove it to you with a few figures. Oh, figures, replied Ned. People can do anything they like with figures. That may be true of business, Ned, but not in mathematics. Listen to me. Let us say that one atmosphere is equal to the pressure exerted by a column of water 32 feet high. Actually, the column of water would not be as high, because we are speaking of seawater whose density is greater than that of fresh water. So when you dive, Ned... As many times, 32 feet of water as there is above you, so many times does your body have to bear a pressure equal to that of the atmosphere. That is to say, about 15 pounds for every square inch of its surface. So it follows that at, at 320 feet, this pressure equals 10 atmospheres, or 3,200 feet, 100 atmospheres. At 32,000 feet, or about 6 miles down, 1,000 atmospheres. That means that if you could attain the, that depth in the ocean, each square inch of the surface of your body would have to bear a pressure of about 15,000 pounds. Now, my good Ned, do you know how many square inches there are on the surface of your body? I have no idea, Monsieur Aranax. About 2,600. As much as that? And since the atmospheric pressure is roughly about 15 pounds to the square inch, you're 2,600. 
100 square inches are at this moment carrying a pressure of about 39,000 pounds. Without my being aware of it? Without your being aware of it. If you are not crushed by such a pressure, it is because the air penetrates your body with equal pressure. Owing to the perfect equilibrium created by the inside and outside pressures, they neutralize each other, which permits you to bear without them without discomfort. But in the water, it's a much different matter. Yes, I can see that, said Ned, who was becoming more attentive, because the water surrounds me, but does not penetrate me. Precisely, Ned. So at 32 feet below the surface of the sea, you would have a pressure of 39,000 pounds. At 320 feet, 10 times as much. At 3,200 feet, 100 times as much. and Or 3,900,000 pounds. And at 32,000 feet, 39 million pounds. So you would be flattened as if you had been just removed from the plates of a hydraulic press. The devil! exclaimed Ned. So, my worthy harpooner, if a vertebrate several hundred yards long, and with a proportionate width, the surface of whose body therefore consists of millions of square inches, can live at such depths, the pressure it can stand with would amount to billions and billions of pounds. How enormous must the power of resistance of its bone structure and the strength of its organism to be able to bear such pressure? Why, said Ned, it would have to be made of iron plates eight inches thick, like an armored frigate. Indeed, Ned, and just think that damage such a mass could inflict if launched with the speed of an express train against the hull of a ship. Well, yes, quite so, perhaps, said Ned, who was dazed by these figures, but did not want to give in. Well, have I convinced you? You've convinced me of one thing, Monsieur Le Naturaliste. That is that if such animals do exist at the bottom of the sea, they must of necessity be as strong as you say they are. If they don't exist, you stubborn harpooner, how do you explain what happened to the Scotia? Perhaps. Yes, yes, go on. Because, no, that isn't true, he answered, although he did not realize, echoed the celebrated reply of Arago. But this answer merely proved the harpooner's obstinacy and nothing else, so I did not press him any further that day. The damage of the Scotia could not be denied. So real had been the hole in her side that it had had to be repaired, and I should not have thought that the existence of the hole could be proved more conclusively than that. Now that hole had not happened without a cause, and since it had not been caused by rocks below the surface, it must have been made by the perforating weapon of an animal. Therefore, according to me, and for all the reasons I have just given, the animal must belong to the vertebrates, class of mammals, group of pisiforms, and finally, order of cetaceans, as regards the family to which it belonged, whale, cachalot, or dolphin, the genus or species in which it was to be included, that was a question to be elucidated later on. In order to solve it, the unknown monster would have to be dissected, and in order to dissect it, it would have to be caught. In order to be caught, it would have to be harpooned, and that was Ned Land's concern. But in order to harpoon it, it would have to be seen, which was the business of the crew, and if we were to see it, we should first have to meet it, and that was a matter of luck. Questions to consider after reading. Kinsey is a loyal servant to the professor. What do you think his purpose is in the story? The Abraham Lincoln is a fast, strong ship ready for battle with a monster. Do you think it's going to be fast enough? What do you think of Ned Land and his suspicions of what the monster is? Thank you for listening to today's chapter. 
If you would like to discuss the questions, follow me on the Crack Open a Classic podcast Instagram page and comment on today's chapter's post. If you like this podcast, please share it with others so we can get the word out about more classics. If you would like to suggest a book to be read, email me at crackopenaclassicpodcast at gmail.com. Chat back tomorrow for the next chapter in this adventure.